WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. And we are back at the COGS Graduate Academic Conference. We are here with Deb Kumar. Hi Deb, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us what you study? So yeah, my study is mainly on the animal study. So some of the people who are not really familiar with the animal, I am from chemistry background. So you all heard about MRI, right? So in MRI, we usually use the magnetic field to look inside organ of our body and try to capture the picture. The same concept is over here, like we use the magnetic field to look inside the biomolecules or the macromolecules in their cell level. So this kind of animal study we are doing on the plant cell wall as well as the fungi cell wall. That is mainly our research group doing on and my research on the plant cell wall and doing the solid state study on that thing. Let's talk a little bit about how you're able to actually understand what these cell walls look like in both fungi and plants. So does it work similarly like an MRI where you're using a magnetic field or are you using something else? No, we are using like, we are using magnetic field. So we use the solid sample. So some of the plants we grow with our collaborator, they usually grow with the carbon-13 leveling. The carbon-13 leveling is processed like a carbon dioxide is leveled with carbon-13 and they grow the plant in that environment. And that's why those carbohydrate composition on the cell wall will remain as a carbon-13. So we detect that carbon-13 signal by that anymore and try to detect the whole cell wall structure. Like cell wall is made up of mainly cellulose, hemicellulose and some of the components like lignin, pectin and this kind of thing. And we need to study that kind of interaction that how these cellulose, hemicellulose and these lignins are interacting and how they are stacking with each other. And if we able to know that composition, we can extract them separately so that we can use them in industry as well. So I can tell you about in, like importance of this, like the lignin we are usually using in the plywood industry as a resin component. So as an adhesive, we can use that lignin. So now you able to know that these kind of biomaterials are huge impact on the industry. Okay, that makes sense. So you're trying to understand the cellular composition of these plants so that you can do things such as creating resins. I was actually thinking of biofuels because we've talked to so many people. Biofuels, you can also use as a biofuels. Like the cellulose, we try to extract the cellulose in the fermentation of the ethanol as well. So you use those kind of things, like any biomaterials you can use. Yeah, and you had mentioned carbon-13. For our listeners that don't know what carbon-13 is, could you explain that a little bit, please? Okay. In nature, there are two isotopes of carbon we found. That is, one is carbon-12, that is naturally abundant, and another is carbon-13, who is it's not naturally abundant. Like, the carbon-13 has natural abundance almost 1.1%, which is very low. So it is hard to detect that carbon-13 in nature properly. So that's why we label the sample with carbon-13 and try to detect that carbon-13 signal by animal. That's why we detect that signal in a more prominent way or the very good way. You had talked about how you're using this labeling to be able to study the structure of these molecules inside of the plants. Are there specific plants that you're studying and what is the significance of them? Okay, so I forgot to tell about the thing like we are mainly studying on the woody plant like which are wood-like structure. Like we have taken eucalyptus, poplar and spruce. Among them eucalyptus are popular are the hardwood and the spruce is a softwood. So mainly the composition we are studying now for the wood structure because some kind of 
grass cell wall study is already been performed so we are not interested in the grass now so now we are very much familiar with the wood because it will help to extract the structure from the wood and it's help in the wood industry as well so now we can make like we can collaborate the science with the industry that can help to build up so really quick before we wrap up, I'm just a little curious about this extraction. So if lignin is interacting with carbohydrate, in some of the woods has this interaction is lower, some of the wood has this interaction is more prominent. So if the interaction differ, we the extraction procedure will differ. Like in it will be vary from wood to wood. So this in, on basis of this interaction study or the basis of this molecular network, extraction procedure will, dif will differ. Actually, I don't not much familiar with the extraction process, like how they extract the molecule. But yeah, the main portion is like that. That will obviously help during the extraction and this kind of thing, because it is really need to know the cell wall structure. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk to us about the work that you're doing when it comes to understanding this cellular composition using your carbon-13 labeling and its relationship with the industry. Good luck with the rest of the conference, and thank you again. Yeah, thank you very much. And we're here with our next interviewee, Hassam Verpai. Hi, Hassam. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us about what you research? Hello, and thank you for interviewing me. So, yeah, as you said, I'm Hassam. I'm first-year PhD student at College of Nursing. And also, my research focused on patients who admitted in critical care settings. I mean, more specifically, I'm focusing on delirium, which is happening in different situations in critically ill patients. For my PhD dissertation, I'm focusing on post-op delirium, which is kind of special delirium happening after surgery, and it can be potentially deadly. Thank you for joining us today. Let's just break it down really fast. What is delirium, and how does that differ from something like confusion? Okay, that's a really great question because when we are talking about delirium, usually people think that, okay, if you, for example, get a couple shots of alcohol or stuff like that, you're going to be delirious. Yeah, it's a general terminology, but delirium in clinical setting means that acute change of mental status, which is representing brain damage or injury. And it should be, of course, treated or medication as soon as possible. So it can be manifested by inattention, disorganized thinking, and also hallucination and disorientation, usually. Now, when it comes to these surgeries, a lot of people often will make their relationships with things like delirium and surgeries using animal models. Are you using an animal model or are you actually working with people specifically? So, yeah, animal models are really great for basic science, but for my discipline, I mean, nursing and medicine or medical sciences, we are more into human subjects. So, no, I'm not going to focus on animals like rats, but it can be a good start for someone who wanted to focus on like molecular aspect of this phenomenon or something like that but after a couple years which we started this thing I mean not just me all scientists in this field so we have a lots of evidence to support this phenomenon and the risk factor and the outcomes related to that so nowadays we are usually focusing on human rather than animals since your research is focused mainly on people after they've had cardiothoracic surgery, are you seeing similarities with the delirium because of the medication or is it because of the surgery? So that's a really, really good question and I would say it's so challenging because we don't know really. So about anesthesia type and anesthesia aspect, 
there are lots of debates that we don't know if the anesthesia piece plays essential roles to development or development of the liver or surgical intervention because patient may experience a lot of blood loss and other th- other things which can be a potential confounder but even for anesthesia type or techniques we have a bunch of controversial evidence that some of them support the ideas that these types of for example anesthesia or anesthetics like these drugs like propofol or isoflurane may contribute to development of delirium but some of the other or more recently a meta-analysis revealed that there is no difference, significant difference between them. So still controversial. I hope that I'm going to answer this question at least somehow in this population. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Hassam. We really appreciate you taking the time out of the conference to talk to us about your work in this important field of delirium. And hopefully we can hear more about it and maybe you have some results about the answers you're trying to find in a future episode of The Sci-Files. So thank you so much once again. Thank you so much for your time, and I hope this is going to be a small help to my patients and their family to get faster recovery and get healed so fast. Thank you. We're here with our next interviewee, Sam Weiser. Hi, Sam. Thanks for joining us today. Can you tell me about what you research? Yeah, so I researched current First Amendment doctrines regarding hate speech and how current the doctrines do not incorporate online speech. So I researched basically like the elements of each of the hate speech doctrines, what cases created the current doctrines, and then proposed a solution how to incorporate online speech within these doctrines. I know that that's a big thing that has been under a lot of scrutiny and debate especially since when, for example, the Bill of Rights were created, free speech really wasn't considered when you have such an expansive medium like the internet. The word doctrine might be familiar to some, but could you explain a little bit about how that incorporates into your work? Yeah, so essentially a doctrine is just like a way that Supreme Court or like other courts can analyze specific issues and rules that they must follow that have been established from prior precedent within the Supreme Court. So a doctrine is just like a rule that was established within a different court case that is now precedent for others. Like Daniel was saying, the internet is something that has not been around for that long. Are you considering it as just the internet like a blog post or even social media? Because social media is very hard to actually control. So I am talking about speech in general made online, whether that be social media, whether that be like a blog post, something. As long as it's speech that has been said on the internet, that's what I'm kind of covering here. You know, there's no current liability for speakers online. Websites have, they're protected under Section 230, which essentially says that the publisher of a website is not considered the actual speaker. And so they get protection. And so the only thing that governs current speech online is the terms and conditions of whatever website it's being published onto. So... That's what I'm kind of covering here is just like speech in general online. So I understand that you're trying to analyze these doctrines, but what are you hoping to get after this analysis? So there's a lot of harm that results from online speech. You know, terrorist organizations use Twitter to recruit people. And there's another thing called virtual communities in which hateful rhetoric can spread like absolute wildfire and can promote violence to specific groups of people. But they are not held liable for whatever they say, even though if they had said the same words but spoke them, they would be constitutionally or they would be violating the Constitution. So my goal here is really just to spark conversation, get the thought process going. I mean, these issues have not been addressed by the Supreme Court. They haven't been addressed by really anyone yet. 
So my goal really is just to get the conversation started. You know, I'm not trying to put further limits on freedom of speech. You know, we live in America. Everyone loves freedom of speech here. But all I'm trying to do is incorporate online speech into already existing doctrines that would prevent such speech if it were spoken verbally. It's really interesting because the internet was born out of the need from physicists such as myself to be able to communicate large amounts of data that were being generated over at the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland across the entire world. But now it's mainly known for being used for memes, but there are also issues like the hate speech that we're talking about here in this portion of the interview. Mm -hmm. So it's really great that you're looking at that. Thanks, Sam. I look forward to hearing a more extensive interview about your research, and I really hope that you can help expand these sorts of doctrines because it's true that they really haven't been regulated properly as well as it should be. So thank you. Thank you. We are joined by another interviewee, Daniel Mari. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell us what you study? So my name is Daniel Mari. I'm a fourth-year student in the biomedical engineering department, and I'm in Dr. Shudin Bhattacharya's lab. So in our lab, we use the computer, build some mathematical and statistical models to understand the cell or you know, biological systems. And uh, we know in biological systems, we have the cells, we have tissues and systems, but we consider in the cell, we have genes where these genes, they contribute a lot. And so we look at transcription factors, which are proteins, and then these proteins binds to the DNA to transcribe the genes to produce transcriptomics and then you know this helps us in our daily activities so instead of you know going to wet lab doing a lot of wet lab experiment we use these machine learning tools and the mathematical statistical models to try and then predict where these proteins known as the transcription factors binds in the genome and then tries to transcribe these genes so you had mentioned that you don't need to go into the lab to perform different experiments and instead you use a computer but at what level does the validity of these computational models matter at? And how do you compare them to the wet lab experiments? Okay, so most of the models that we produce, we validate them with wet lab experiments. Yes, yeah, so when you produce the model, you need to validate the model. So you need some kind of data set to validate your model. So we try to fit our model to the data set, and if our model fits the data set, like the dynamics of the data set, so for example, in my research, I do model the circadian rhythm, and then the circadian rhythm is like the biological clock. So in the human system, in every cell, we have a clock in the, each cell that tries to synchronize our body with the day-to-day -day activities like day and night. So modeling the circadian rhythm mathematically, we need expression from these genes that are really into the circadian clock mechanism. We call them the circadian clock genes. So we need expression data from them to validate our model. So we don't just need the model but we also need experimental data to validate our model. And they're using the experimental data to validate our model. If our model coincides with the experimental data, then we can base on our model for prediction rather than going to do a lot of experiments again in the wet lab and you know spend a lot of money, a lot of time. We can just base on the model that we've created, validated by using the wet lab data set, and then use that model to make prediction. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Instead of just doing a bunch of experiments, not having an idea of what will happen, this gives you some guidance. And then at least you can say with confidence after the experiments are done that, hey, this worked. So the circadian rhythm is something that we haven't spoken about in a while. What are you specifically looking at with the circadian rhythm? Because there are so many different factors that you can look at with that. 
Okay, yeah, so there are several factors, and we know that disruption of this circadian rhythm leads to a lot of cardiovascular diseases, cancer, insomnia. But so what I'm looking at is to look at how the genes that comes up to, you know, to form the circadian clock genes are being teared by or have been disturbed by toxic substance. So as humans, you know, day in and day out, we inhale the substance, and these toxic substance, as they get into our body, they disturb our genes, right? And what we are trying to do is to try and then get a mathematical model to see how these genes are being disturbed by, the circadian clock genes are being disturbed by these toxic substances and then the effects that they may have on, on the human body. So when it comes to this system that you're studying, are there any parts of the body specifically that you're investigating when it comes to the circadian rhythm expression? I'm looking at in the liver the transcription of this gene so we know that the liver is made up of several lobules so this lobule is like a six-figure hexagonal shape and then several units of this comes together to form the liver right and then within each lobule we have several cells we have which forms like the hepatocytes which makes up of like 80 percent of the liver cells and then we have the central vein and then the portal vein so the liver can be divided into subsections Okay, so we try to generate a model to try and then look at the subsections in the liver and also there has been several research and papers that comes up and then shown that the expression of the circadian clock genes in the liver is non-zonated. Thank you Daniel so much for joining us today. I really enjoyed hearing about this research and I'm looking forward to hearing a more extensive explanation about all that you're doing. Yeah, yeah. thank you guys very much for giving me the opportunity to share what I'm working on and then I look forward to hearing from you so that I can talk more about my research. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files and remember, the truth is in the science.